0: psalm 110 let's read together a psalm of david the lord says to my lord sit at my right hand until i make your enemies your footstool the lord sends forth from zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning the dew of your youth will be yours So our second reading this morning comes from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 to 41. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, Let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since since it is only the third hour of the day. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy ones see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day, being there for a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls.
1: Our Father in heaven, by the power of your Spirit, we pray that you would help me to speak of Jesus Christ clearly, boldly, and help all of us to take it to heart. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well last week, for those here, I started with the question: "Is Jesus an imaginary friend? And can we be sure? And I've heard from a few of you that it is a question that's popped into your head sometimes. Is Jesus an imaginary friend? After all, we, we can't see Jesus with our eyes, can we? Lots of people around us don't believe he's real, or if they're historically informed, they know he was real. I mean, there's a huge historical footprint, but you can't say he's alive today. So when Christians speak about a personal relationship with Jesus, it must be an imaginary friend. But actually, of course, Christians don't call Jesus primarily a friend. We speak of him as a king. The song we sang earlier, King of Kings majesty we think he's the ruler of the world so which is it imaginary friend or invisible king and we don't have a different introduction this week because this passage gives us the evidence So last week, if you're a skeptic just looking on here, maybe you heard the claim last week, Jesus is real, he's a real king, invisible but real, and you thought, well, I want to see some serious proof, some evidence on the ground, if that's the case. Well, this week, Luke, our careful historian, begins to give us some of the evidence on the ground. Last week, Jesus told us what he'd be doing invisibly. He said, I'll send power... And then you, these chosen spokesmen, would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, the ends of the earth. And this week we see it starting to actually happen on the ground. Now you may have noticed the passage is long. And if you look at the back of the service sheet, there's a handout and there's plenty on there. But if you want to stay awake, listen out for this thing. Listen out for every piece of evidence that Jesus is really ruling. Keep that promise in your mind and listen out for evidence that Jesus is really ruling. That this passage proves beyond reasonable doubt that Jesus is a reigning king, not an imaginary friend. So we're going to dive in. The passage breaks into two parts. There's the event and then the explanation. So we watch the event of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit being poured out in verses 1 to 13. And then we get a long explanation, actually just a sermon from verses 14 to the end. Um, and I can tell you now that uh, given the sermon is from Peter, one of Jesus' chosen uh, spokesmen, it's a lot better than any sermon I could come up with. So most of the time we'll be given to giving him the microphone. But let's start with the divine event um, from the start of the chapter. Look with me at verse 1. So verse 1, on page 909 if you've closed your Bible. Acts 2 verse 1 The day of Pentecost arrived, and they were all together in one place. I think this is the 120 disciples we heard about back in verse 15 of chapter 1. I don't think it's just the 12 apostles. I think it's all of them. And immediately, there are massive supernatural signs that something's going on, aren't there? This extraordinary sound of wind, this sight of fire. I mean, just imagine if I started to get drowned out, and the guy on the sound desk is turning me up and turning me up. But you can't hear me because there's this extraordinary sound of a rushing wind. It's like a tornado, but with no wind. And then the sight of fire begins to fill the auditorium, resting on each head. But there's no fuel, there's no combustion. If you know the story of Moses and the burning bush that didn't burn, these are signs that God is turning up. Wind, fire. Signs that God is turning up. God the Holy Spirit. And it's worth saying, God the Holy Spirit isn't some impersonal force, just a substance. No, he is God, God himself, God the Holy Spirit. That's why we refer to the Spirit as a he, not an it. But here, the third person of the triune God is turning up. And not just turning up, verse 4, but moving in. Verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what happens? Well, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So there's a God, the Holy Spirit, filling them, miracle. And that leads to a speaking foreign languages, miracle. Notice it's not unintelligible, kind of spiritual tongues. Rather, it's the instant supernatural ability to speak multiple languages, or for each of them to speak different languages, Real human languages. Like if point two of my sermon was in German and point three was in Swahili. And verses five to 13 make it really clear that is what's happening. So uh, we're at harvest festival season in Jerusalem, so it's absolutely packed with Jews from all over the place. Verse five, they're from every nation under heaven. And verse six, read with me. At this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered. Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who we hear speaking Galileans? How is it we hear each of us in our own native language? The terms there are, they're talking about different languages. They're also talking about different dialects. The disciples are instantly given not just the full grammar and vocab of different languages, you know, Greek, Aramaic, the others, but but even specific regional dialects. They're speaking the local lingo from everywhere. This week I was in a Bible study with a friend from Lewis, and he was saying something, and it took us three attempts to pick it up. It turned out it was English, just my ears weren't tuned. But there's no problem like that here. Folks from the islands, folks from the East Coast, the West Coast, all around the Med, the Middle East, Turkey, Northern Africa. Look at verse 11. Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them talking, telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And of course, verse 12, they're all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? That's a really good question. What does this mean? What's the point of Pentecost? What does it mean? What should we make of it? And at this point, all sorts of different Christian groups would jump to lots of different conclusions about what this means. So does it mean we should pray for the sound of rushing wind or tongues of fire in our meetings, visible fire? Does it mean we should talk more about the spiritual gift of tongues? Does it mean that if you haven't had this precise experience, you're not a real Christian. You don't have the full Holy Spirit. Well, let me say, by the time we get to verse 38, it will be clear that all Christians get the Spirit. And if you want to know about the spiritual gift of tongues, well, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 is the place to go. We hope to have a series on 1 Corinthians soon. But do notice here, the Spirit is not causing unintelligible speech but actual human languages that is it's the equivalent of someone receiving the instant ability to speak Chinese all the correct tonal variations and regional vocab but actually I don't want to give my answer to what this means or anyone else's because King Jesus has already given us everything we need to know what to make of this. I hope when we do this the week after next in our small group studies, I hope we allow King Jesus to explain the phenomenon. Just flick back with me to chapter 1, verse 8. Before he left, King Jesus made very clear exactly what we should make of this event. Chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus himself told us what to make of this strange supernatural event at Pentecost. This was the powerful equipping of his disciples to be witnesses to him to the ends of the earth. And actually, when you think about it, that's why God chose these particular phenomena, these supernatural happenings, to make it really obvious. So the fire, the wind, God is turning up in power, the languages, so that you can speak to the ends of the earth of Jesus. Which, if you took my advice at the start about staying awake, if you're making a kind of divine, uh, sorry, making a, a, a Tick list of things that Jesus has said he'll do, his divine to-do list. Well, we've got two huge ticks by chapter 2. He said he'd send power, the Holy Spirit. Tick. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Tick. And all this is happening in chapter 2 after Jesus has disappeared from sight. And it's stuff that's quite hard to fake. Did you notice that huge crowd? And verse 7, the crowd know these people are just Galileans. like They don't have excellent language training. Jesus told us beforehand, this is power to witness to him. But even more than that, in his kindness, he didn't just give us Acts 1 verse 8. He also gave us people like Peter, his chosen spokesman, to explain it even more. And the rest of the passage is Peter explaining Pentecost and it's a great sermon he gives. This is a sermon really worth listening to. Um, There are three parts to it. It's a three-parter, classic. Um, Part A, he says, realize when. So what time are we? Where are we in history? When? That's part A. Then part B, realize who. Who is in charge? And then we're going to get on to see the response, if you know those things. So let me read the start of Peter's Sermon. There are actually two things the crowd are thinking. One is, what does this mean? The other is, they must be drunk. Peter stands up and says, they can't be drunk. Verse 14, 15, it's too early to be drunk. But 16, this was what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Just look through with me. In the last days, verse 17, it shall be, God declares, that I'll pour my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy... Your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I'll pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I'll show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapour of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter says, what's happening at Pentecost is exactly what Joel predicted, what God promised through his prophets. You'll see on the handout the things that Joel said were the signs of this time. Verse 19 I'll show wonders in the heavens and signs on the earth there'll be there'll be extraordinary supernatural signs and wonders and he says verse 17 more amazing still god will pour out his spirit on all flesh it's repeated in 18 as well now just to be clear it's not that god the holy spirit had never operated in the old testament uh, he would come on special people for special tasks so kings and prophets Now, the shocking thing about this promise was one day the Holy Spirit would be be poured out on everyone of God's people, every type, every rank. And that's what leads, verse 17, to your sons and your daughters prophesying, and your young men seeing visions, your old men dreaming dreams. See, in the past, only chosen prophets would speak for God. Isaiah, Daniel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and dreams, visions, prophecies was the kind of revelation they had. So before the full clarity of Jesus' revelation came, well, just think, we looked at the book of Isaiah, described as the vision of Isaiah, pictures of Jesus to come. Think of Joseph's dreams, Daniel's dreams. But the shocking thing here is that all believers will become prophets. All will be speaking what we know of God. Verse 18, even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I'll pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Now just as a quick sidebar, does this mean as Christians we should be seeking dreams and visions? I wonder if that question has occurred to you i don't think it does partly because the new testament makes it really clear that the revelation of jesus christ can't be improved on last week made clear that we're to stick to the words of his apostles his chosen witnesses rather than looking elsewhere so why does joel use that language well because in the old testament this was how god revealed himself to prophets Notice prophesying, brackets, verses 17 and 18. It's either side. If you're not sure about that answer, think what's going on in Pentecost. Actually, we're not hearing dreams or seeing dreams. We're hearing words, words about Jesus. Peter says, that speaking miracle is the fulfillment of Joel declaring the mighty acts of God. What does Peter do when he stands up full of the Holy Spirit? Well, we're going to see he preaches about Jesus. You can ask me more about that if you want to. There's more I could say, but because of time, I'll keep going. Um, To get us back on track, I'm going to show us a picture again. Um, So it's time for a picture to recap. We're going to see what Peter is saying from Joel. So this is Joel. Joel says, Well, the whole book focuses on the day of the Lord is coming. So there's going to be a mighty day of judgment, a day of reckoning, of justice across all the nations. That's what Joel says. And he says, you'll know the time before that moment because there'll be some signs. In fact, there'll be supernatural signs and wonders. That's one of the things to look out for. And there'll be the time when God pours his spirit out on all of his people. And the effect of him pouring his spirit on all people is that all of his people will prophesy. That is, they'll declare um, about him to others. That was Joel. And Peter says that is what's happening right here at Pentecost. Let me try and make it clearer. Here's a timeline. Um, so here we are, we're in Acts 2. What's already happened? Well, Jesus has died, Jesus has risen from the dead, and in Acts 1, he ascended, so he went back to God's presence, out of sight. Now, with Jesus disappeared, seemingly, or well, suddenly on the ground, we get people speaking. And it's miraculous. It's clearly a miraculous speaking miracle all of these disciples are speaking about god's mighty works what's going on well peter says they're not under the influence of wine they're under the influence of the holy spirit they've been filled with god's spirit and as verse 22 looks makes clear verse 22 there have been mighty works wonders and signs in verse 43 we'll see there are going to be plenty more signs and wonders You see, you've got the whole package from Joel. Do you see that? All the signposts. Which means Peter says, his first point, realize what time we're living in. This is the last days. We are in the last days. That is the final days before God's judgment. The the times before the great day of the Lord that Joel spoke about. Let me just pause for a moment there. I realize this is a lot to take on board. I realize that when people talk about the day of judgment today, it can just sound like a bit of a fairy tale or a ghost story. You know, the kind of thing they believed in medieval times. But actually, we've all grown out of that now, haven't we? But here's the thing. If God is planning to bring a a cataclysmic day of reckoning to humanity, if he takes what we do seriously enough, that there'll actually be a reckoning. Well, he's got all the power to do it, obviously. He's plenty righteous that he might be determined to do it. But you would expect him to give us some fair warning, wouldn't you? The Bible's claim is that he's done exactly that. So Joel gave... Key pointers, fair warning to know about this final day approaching. And Peter stands up and says, look, these are all the signs. You can see them right in front of you. What do you do if you know you're in the last days? Well, verse 21, just have a look at it. God, God, in his kindness, doesn't just give us fair warning. He gives us a way To get right with him. Verse 21. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you discover you're in the last days, you should call on the name of the Lord. ASAP. That's Peter's first big point. Realize what time this is. That's his explanation. This event shows... We're in the last days, the final countdown before Judgment Day. But then, something strange happens in his sermon. So that's his passage. seems to be all about the Spirit, the last days. But did you notice the subject from verse 22 onwards? He doesn't, as you might expect, say men of Israel, Let me tell you about the Spirit of God. No, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. Peter's sermon subject is the Lord Jesus. He speaks all about Jesus. So you've seen it at the start. Verse 22, he talks about Jesus' life. Verses 22 to 23 Then he goes on to the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. That's verses 24 to 32. Then he talks about evidence for where Jesus is currently reigning, exalted. Verse 33. And then he talks about the promise that he'll return to judge one day. That's 34 to 36. Look, it's a sermon all about Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. The original Pentecostal sermon. Pentecostal preaching is preaching about Jesus. But why? I mean, what's going on? Wasn't the event about the giving of the Holy Spirit? Why leap from there to Jesus? Well, there are two reasons, and they're both hugely important. Firstly, the Holy Spirit focuses us onto Jesus. And then we'll see that the last days should focus us on Jesus as well. Firstly, the Holy Spirit focuses us onto Jesus. Remember Acts 1.8? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses, says Jesus, witnesses to me. Just like in John 15, if you were here a few months ago. The helper, the Spirit, will come, and he will bear witness about me, says Jesus the reason I'm pointing this out, it's quite important actually today. If you want to know what a spirit-filled Christian or a spirit-filled church looks like, it will look like what Peter does here. Speaks about Jesus using words from the Bible. I need to point that out because there's lots of confusion here. And I spent a lot of my life actually being confused about this when I was a student at um, I was looking around at churches trying to think, what are the, the kind of real signs of being spirit-filled? Is it, is it the particular kind of music? Is it a particular level of informality or of formality? Is it about flags and freedom? Is it about long pews and long prayers? And the answer is none of the above. Either of those places could be spirit-filled. The question is, is Jesus being proclaimed? as the fulfillment of God's promises in Scripture. That's the first reason why Peter speaks about Jesus. That's just what Spirit-filled people do. I hope that's a huge encouragement to us. As in our small groups, we gather around the Bible and try and speak about Jesus. As we go out and do our best to witness to the Jesus we know, the power of the Spirit is at work. But secondly, why Peter speaks about Jesus is because the last days should focus us on him. There's actually one verse about the Holy Spirit in his sermon. It's verse 33, and it is an important one. Just look at verse 33 with me. I'll read from 32. This Jesus, God raised up, of that we're all witnesses, verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Peter says, What you're witnessing on the ground in Jerusalem are the visible effects of King Jesus. He is the one pouring out the Spirit. Notice the evidence is right in front of their eyes. He says, you yourselves are hearing and seeing. In fact, all the way through the sermon. (laughs) It's great, actually. It's the kind of sermon you can only actually kind of preach directly in Jerusalem. This is the city where all these events have happened. Just look at verse 22. uh, Jesus of Nazareth, a man, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. And then when he goes on to talk about the resurrection, the next chunk, he says, look, we all know where David's tomb is. You can go and visit. But the tomb of Jesus is empty. Can anyone produce his body? No. And then verse 33, you're watching the evidence of the risen king, Jesus. Pentecost is proving Jesus is not imaginary friend territory, but risen king. And just as we said last week, it's not just that proof in the present in history. It's also the promises from the past, the scriptural promises, the prophecies. We won't go through them all in detail. We've looked at Joel 2. There's Psalm 16, the promise that God's king wouldn't actually decompose in the grave. And most strikingly, towards the end, verse 34, he goes to Psalm 110. That's the one we had read in our first reading. Psalm 110, let me just read verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Great King David said, there is a greater king than me. A Lord, my Lord, who will sit at the right hand of God. And Peter says that's where Jesus is right now. And notice what the king's doing from Psalm 110. He's waiting until God the Father makes his enemies your footstool. That is, he's waiting for the day of the Lord to come. As Psalm 110 goes on, the day of wrath. To put it another another way, Joel warned us that there'd be this great day of the Lord. Peter stands up and says, that will be the day of Christ. He is the Lord. Know for certain, verse 36, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And we need to realize just how urgent and serious that message is. If you've zoned out for a few minutes, just come back on board with me. Because Peter here, he's not giving a theological lecture. I mean, there's a lot in there. This isn't just a lecture. It's an urgent appeal. Just think yourselves back into the shoes, if you would, of that crowd. Fifty days before this, you were in Jerusalem for, um, for Passover festival. And you were in the crowd when everyone was shouting to crucify I mean, it was just some upstart teacher who'd got a bit ahead of himself, thought he was the Messiah. To be honest, you weren't quite exactly sure what he'd done wrong. But, you know, the opinion leaders, the local media, everyone else seemed to think he deserved to die. And you're not about to stand out, be labelled a weirdo or a troublemaker. So, so you shouted along with everyone else. And here you are, back in Jerusalem, 50 days later, another festival, And you've just witnessed the most amazing miracle. People are speaking in in supernatural foreign languages. And then one of them stands up and bit by bit, he's explained, you are in terrible, terrible trouble. You see, it turns out that upstart preacher from Nazareth, well, he was marked out by God with all sorts of signs and wonders. And you can see a few nods around you. From the crowd because they remember the miracles in this city. Wow, that was a mistake, but at least he's dead and buried, so we can move on. No, says Peter. He goes on to say, No. Death couldn't hold him. He smashed the grave to bits. He's the fulfillment of David's prophecy that the king couldn't be abandoned to death. Okay, so he's alive. Where is he right now, then, if I can't see him? Well, he's ruling. He's right above your head now. And in fact, you can see the effects of his rule because his spirit has been poured out, causing all this commotion. And you know what? He's going to sit at the right hand of God until the time is right to bring the day of the Lord, this great day of judgment. And so when Peter, verse 36, concludes and says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God's made him both Lord and Christ this jesus whom you crucified i wonder if we just begin to see why they might be cut to the heart in verse 37 why they might be begging to know what to do next you see it is possible to be so so wrong about jesus If anyone here thinks he's just an imaginary friend or just a nice lifestyle option, someone you can try for a bit, discard, listen into and ignore. Peter says you're so, so wrong. He says he's the risen king and there's plenty of evidence. Evidence on the ground, prophecies in the past. So everyone's going to meet him in judgment. See, that's what spirit-filled Pentecostal preaching focuses on. It's a willingness to declare what the Bible says about Jesus. But actually, wonderfully, that's not the note that Peter ends on. It's not the note this passage ends on. You see, remember from Joel, it wasn't actually just a terrifying message of doom, the day of the Lord is coming. No, it was an invitation, a promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And what is the name to call on, this name of the Lord? Well, Peter says, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. See, Jesus is a name we can call on. Yes, he's the Lord, the Lord who will judge, but he's also the saviour. The saviour who will save, who can forgive sins. Before Jesus left at the end of Luke, he said that repentance and forgiveness will have to be preached in his name from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And here's another divine tick on the to-do list. The offer of forgiveness preached in Jerusalem. So as we draw to a close, let me just briefly summarize some implications. And I guess we may want to talk about these in more detail. You may want to ask me questions. I'm very happy to take them. What are the implications of this event at Pentecost? Peter's explained it. It means we're in the last days and Jesus is reigning. What are the implications for us? Well, if you're not a Christian here, I hope it's obvious what Peter would say. He'd say, look, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be safe, will be forgiven. So turn around and trust in Jesus. But for those of us who are Christians, remember Luke is writing to give us certainty. What are we supposed to be certain of from this passage? I think first and foremost, be certain that Jesus is a reigning king. He reigns now. He will return. And then because he's the reigning king, we're in an age of opportunity. This is the time where everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so there is, I think, a great encouragement to speak about Jesus, to offer that wonderful offer of forgiveness. But thirdly, and perhaps most encouraging of all, because in this time of opportunity, Jesus has poured out his spirit, the spirit of boldness, the spirit of love, well, then we have the power and actually the privilege to all be prophets to speak of the Lord Jesus. And as we go on in the book of Acts, we'll, we'll help each other more with that. We'll, we'll talk about how do you do that practically we'll see more than just the apostles speaking about Jesus. But right now, from this passage, we know that Jesus reigns and has put his power in our hearts. Let me close this in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we're so conscious of our weakness. When it comes to speaking about you to others, we often feel weak, but we thank you so much that the Lord Jesus is reigning and has poured out his spirit on all who turn and trust in him. And so we pray that this would be a church that enables many people to hear the wonderful good news of Jesus. And for any here, Lord, who don't yet know him, we do pray you be at work by your spirit to show them the Lord Jesus. For his glory. Amen.